You have tuned into Parexcel's podcast series, Decentrally Speaking, where we explore opportunities to operationalize decentralized clinical trials across our industry. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our second podcast on Decentrally Speaking. My name is Sanjay Vyas, and I'm the Executive Vice President and Global Strategic Business Unit Head for Clinical Trials, Supplies, and Logistics at Parexcel. And in today's podcast, we are going to focus on the shifting roles of pharmaceutical clinical supply chain within a direct-to-patient environment. And to discuss this topic, I have two colleagues with me who have had some real hands-on experience in the clinical supply chain world, but also managing the direct-to-patient shipments while conducting decentralized trials within its varied versions. I have here with me Laurie McRae, who is our global lead for the solutions design within clinical supplies business unit. And I also have with me today, Daniel Meyer, who is our strong SME, but also leads the portfolio and project management team within clinical trial supplies and logistics business unit. So welcome, Laurie and Daniel. Thanks, Sanjay. I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you, Sanjay. So let me lay the foundation of today's discussion. Clinical supply chain is an integral and a very important part of any clinical study conduct to have the right drug to the right patient at the right time and in the right condition. And especially when you talk about moving from a traditional way of conducting a study to a decentralized trial, the role of supply chain gets all the more complicated as DCTs not only require shipping to multiple coordinating sites, including shipping directly to patients' homes, If you really look from a supply chain perspective or a direct-to-patient perspective, there are technically three kinds of models and advantages that come from a logistics angle. You either have the direct-to-patient happening from an investigator site to a patient's home, or you have the similar shipment taking place from a depot to a patient's home, or either from a site or a depot to a nurse's home who then takes the drugs to the patient's home for medication compliance. So with that... I would like to know that in a world of clinical supply chain, when you're dealing with IMP, non-IMP, rescue medications or devices, where do you think is the most applicability for direct-to-patient shipments? Thanks, Sanjay. I think there are lots of applications and opportunities for direct-to-patient shipments, but I think what you really need to look at is the type of material and your reason for shipping. And I'll give you an example. We worked on a study recently where The study was conducted as a traditional study. The patients came into the sites, they received their medication at the sites, but they also needed bulky at-home ancillary supplies for sample collection. And so instead of sending those patients home with a freezer and a huge box of things that they would then have to carry home on the bus or fit into the trunk of their car, we shipped those items directly to the patient's home, making that easier for the patient to participate in the study. So I think one of the ways that you can look at it is, is what kind of supplies are you providing to those patients and how can you make it easy for the patients? Another opportunity, I think, is when we start to think about real-world evidence studies where you're not having as much heavy touch on the patients, you know, and you need them to have a Fitbit or some other activity tracker at home. Can you ship those items directly to the patient? Daniel, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it definitely begs the opportunity for patients to be most convenient for them as opposed to moving things on their own because some studies will definitely have materials that aren't transferable between the site and the house very easily and or there could be a stigma with it. I also feel that some of the studies that really work well are is if we talk about direct to patient but there's also direct from patient 
we don't talk about that enough in the fact that sometimes they just have to go into the site to take a sample. Well, if we can do at-home sampling, whether it's a micro sample and it's mailed in or a home healthcare nurse decides to go in and draw that sample, that's really benefiting the patients from the, the convenience of the trial itself, as well as just laying it out there for the patient to not have to travel as much for such a simple activity. It could be a 30-minute drive for a five-minute sample. That doesn't really help our patients at all. Great example. So while we are on that topic, I think one of the interesting questions that normally our sponsors are always keen to understand is what are the key practical considerations for executing a direct-to-patient from a supply chain or administration perspective? So when you're actually executing a DTP shipment, what are the key practical aspects that we should take into consideration? Sure. So I think as we sort of talked about in that first question, right, we really have to understand our patients first and foremost. And, you know, from a supply chain perspective, we've been thinking about our patients usually from a packaging perspective. How do we enhance compliance with our packaging? How do we help a patient who has arthritis open a child-resistant bottle? But I think we need to take that a step further as we start to talk about direct-to-patient and think about how do we support the patients? Are we really supporting the patients? So I think that first and foremost, we need to understand our patients and then support them and use this as a tool of supporting our patients. If you're going to do a direct-to-patient trial, you need to have that included in your informed consent because the patients need to understand what's happening with their data. Daniel, I know you have some thoughts on this informed consent and data protection. Yeah. As we grow into this, the electronic data protections that exist for patients globally have to really be considered holistically if you're in a global situation in a decentralized trial. The laws vary and they're emerging right now for the electronic data protection systems. And so you have to look at it from a key practicality of this. Is it practical across a global trial to be able to get that? And, and what do you do if a patient says no, you know, because of that reason? I think what you just mentioned, Daniel, is very good because it's not just from the patients, but also from a regulatory perspective, also working hand in glove, making sure that you have the needed regulatory approvals in each of the countries, because every region, every country is different from from an execution perspective also, right? Plus, at the same time, the depot strategy also matters the most. Like, do you stock at the nearest point with the just-in-time labeling capabilities, right? Those are the kind of practical considerations you have to keep in mind, whether will you be able to ship the truck to the patient's home? In order to execute an efficient direct-to-patient shipment to occur, there must be an assurance of drug stability, appropriate storage facilities at patients' home, measures to prevent unauthorized access, detecting tempering, temperature tracking, dosing diaries, timely refills, and preventing any kind of study interruptions. Since we spoke about the practical considerations for DTP, let's pivot a little bit and talk about what are the biggest logistical or supply chain challenges that Parkcell Clinical Trial Supply Chain Logistics Team faces when executing a DTP shipment? And at the same time, while you're talking about challenges, if you can also talk about what are the practical ways with which our team mitigates these challenges. Sure. So kind of the first step is to define exactly what we mean when we say direct to patient. It could be a site shipment, so site to patient, or is it a depot to patient? For the depot to patient model, that's a definitive challenge just because the regulatory aspects haven't been caught up yet. So is a pharmacist required or are we under clinical law at that point? So that's not yet been sorted out from uh, what's the field or what's the requirement. And so when we go into those models in general, we're going to go site to patient is what we've done to date most effectively. And they order it and we execute to the patient. And this is an IMP study. So the previous examples we can do directly from the depot for ancillary materials. 
But that that is something that is an emergent learning situation for the industry right now, in my opinion, with regards to what are the requirements specifically? Do you need a pharmacist in every state? That hasn't yet been defined. So in absence of actually getting that data, what we've done is just do a site to patient model. And it's been effective. I'd like to add to what Daniel said, because, you know, I think flexibility in your supply chain model is key because you can't do a depot to patient shipment everywhere. Even if you started to have that sorted out from a pharmacist standpoint in the U.S., the laws in Latin America, in Europe, in Asia Pacific, they're different and they have different requirements. And so you may be able to leverage a depot to site model in some regions, but in other regions, you're going to have to leverage a site to patient model. And so I think those are the some important considerations to think about. I think the other things that we need to think about is how do we role play what could happen when we deliver the product to the patient? So I think of this a little bit in the same way that you would role play a cell and gene therapy delivery and how that product is going to move. So what happens when the courier gets to the patient's house and the patient has gone to the grocery store? Or what happens when it gets to the patient's house and somebody who is not the patient answers the door? What happens if there's a temperature out of range? All of those things need to be thought about in advance so that you have a plan so that you can execute that plan when it happens, not if it happens. So I think that that's an important piece that we need to be thinking about always with logistics. Planning is key, but especially so in this case where there are so many sort of what-if scenarios. What happens in a scenario if there is, at the end of the study, how do you manage the returns and destructions and reconciliation perspective? What are the challenges and what are the mitigation strategies out there? Yeah, absolutely. And that I think is a really big question. And that requires a lot of coordination with the clinical team as well, because typically it's the clinical team that is responsible for that drug accountability at the site. And so now that the drug isn't at the site, what do you do? Do you have the patient send that drug back into the site? Is the patient visiting the site at all? If not, what happens? If this patient does go back into the site on occasion, do they bring all of their drug with them to then be returned and accounted for that way. I think that there are lots of opportunities here and lots of possibilities that can happen. You have to look at your specific project and start to think about, okay, well, if I'm shipping this drug to the patient, how do I monitor the drug temperature at that patient's home throughout the life of the trial? And I think at some point we need to stop and think, okay, if that patient went into the site and picked up their drug and took it home, would you be worried about monitoring that patient's drug at their house? Probably not. That hasn't been a concern that we've seen in a standard trial. So I think we need to plan for the, you know, sort of worst case scenario and all of the possibilities. We also need to be careful not to over-engineer solutions. So as you're looking at your drug stability, how important is it that that temperature is really maintained? And if it is super important that your drug has no flexibility, maybe it's not an ideal candidate for a direct-to-patient drug. Absolutely aligned with you. So, but Daniel, just from your perspective, like while we're talking about the challenges, what kind of technologies do you know or aware about are being evaluated that are available to support? Can you give some examples that talk about the DTP execution and addressing the challenges that we just discussed? Are there any technologies that are being evaluated in the market at this point in time? There are. There are quite a few uh, new and exciting. And again, that not only going to be useful for, as Lori pointed out, direct-to-patient model, but it could also be a traditional model as well. But we see, you know, remote access for refrigerators for storage where you can lock a patient out and they can record when they open the door all the way up to, you know, an individual bottle with an RFID in it that records when the patient takes the cap off the bottle. 
they're actually looking at over-encapsulated products that have trackers in them that know when they went through the patient. So again, these are all exploratory, but in general, you just have to be cautious. And that's all very new. And, and there are some very exciting technologies out there that will enable the data capture to be very robust. I've even seen automatic pill dispensing machines where the retina scan of a patient dispenses the medication right at the time when it's needed to be dosed to the patients as well. But I think this is interesting from a supply chain logistics perspective. This is all we need to manage, right, from the devices to the drug supply piece. There's one very interesting discussion that's happening right now, right? So far, we all have been speaking about direct-to-patient from a domestic delivery perspective. We are assuming that a drug is sitting inside the country and from within that depot, we are able to send it to a patient's home or maybe the investigator site is within that country and we are able to ship it on the other side. What all do you foresee from a future of DTP from a cross-border direct-to-patient perspective? When I say cross-border, I'm talking about cross-country. We did it during COVID. We had a, a site in Malaysia that we were shipping to from Singapore. When the sites in Malaysia closed, that patient still needed their drug and they couldn't cross the border. And so we had to provide them drug direct to patient from our Singapore depot to their home in Malaysia. Now that was in a an emergency sort of situation. And to do that, we had to work very, very closely with the regulators in both countries with our global trade compliance teams to make sure that we were working within the boundaries of the law, that the regulators were aligned with our process and our reasoning for doing it. I think that that would need to be certainly a early on discussion with your regulators as to A, why you need to do a direct-to-patient shipment for your particular study, and B, why that then needs to be a cross-border shipment and why that makes sense. So I think it's possible, but I don't see it happening anytime very soon because we're still trying to get our local regulations coordinated and understood first. And then I think we'll be able to tackle the cross-border. Daniel, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. Yeah. So my opinion here is, is it's coming. All right. I understand it may take some time and countries will lead and, and lag in their regulations. But I think the pandemic showed us that the model that we sort of adopted over time for our traditional clinical trials, the pandemic blew that up. The pandemic said, no, you can do this. And it forced our hand. And I think that it definitely showed the industry that this is something that you can do. And maintain patient safety. I mean, I think that's the biggest concern. Right. The biggest concern is safety. And then after that, your documentation. So if it showed us that we can do it, I believe there'll be certain companies in certain countries that will be like, yes, we can do this. And if your trial qualifies, there may be some qualifying statements or qualifying reasons why you have to do it, like you stated. And then, yes, you can do it. It's interesting because at the end of the day, what you said, Laurie, was a great example. A cross-border between Malaysia and Singapore that was executed. But that was possible because there is a road network between the two countries, its neighboring countries. But think about if your distance between two continents. And as you rightly mentioned, is it really something which would be feasible from a shipping perspective, from a customs compliance perspective, from a cross-border licensing perspective? And I think that's where the combination is. But I, I am also a firm believer, like Daniel said, that at some point of time, the international cross-border will come because one is the visibility, the applicability to the therapeutic area, but the cost factor also comes into play. Does it make sense to follow a hub and spoke model where you try to keep the drugs distributed between those different spokes? Or would you like to look at one common hub, let's say in Singapore, and try to look at that hub as a distribution point across multiple countries? But then you will have to be really efficient in terms of planning your entire supply chain from your flight bookings to your licensing to your last mile delivery to the patient's home and making sure that the nurse or the doctor is available at the same time. 
Well, and Sanjay, I agree with you. I think the other piece, you know, we've talked a lot about the different technologies that would help enable direct-to-patient, you know, different smart packaging and, and freezers and refrigerators that lock patients out. And those also have a cost associated with it. So like everything else with clinical trials, you have to look at, okay, where am I getting the most bang for my buck? Where's going to get me the best possible data for this trial? And that's where you decide to spend your money. And I think that a lot of this is going to come down to companies looking at what's my risk assessment? How do I get the best possible data from this study? One last question to both of you is, from a future state, the decentralized trials discussion is not new. It is something which has been happening in the industry for pretty much eight to 10 years. But what's the future state? How do you foresee the supply chain changing in future, looking at the growth of either hybrid or fully decentralized trials? Yeah, so I think we're going to start to see a hybrid model more than just a straight direct-to-patient model all the time. I think that there are certain types of patients and therapies that lend themselves very easily to a direct-to-patient model. If I think about a diabetes trial or an asthma trial where these patients are on a chronic medication, they don't necessarily need to see a physician monthly to be able to get their medication. You know, Just like in a regular situation, you would see your doctor once a year and you have an annual prescription. Those, I think, will very easily fall into a direct-to-patient scenario where you have maybe a, a patient who's more ill and part of the benefit of joining a clinical trial is more focused medical attention or working with key opinion leader physicians in your disease state. I think those are the types of patients where you're less likely to see as much adaptation of a direct-to-patient model because their whole motivation for joining the trial is seeing that physician. And so I think, again, we've talked a lot about how this really comes down to who your patient is. And I think at the end of the day, that is the key, is who is your patient and are you willing to flex your supply chain to meet the needs of your patients? Daniel, what are your thoughts here? I agree. I think it becomes an option for these trials. You're walking up and saying, this is what I need to do, where in the future state, we'll have pre-decided. So we can look at a trial and say, you actually fit this model very well based on our experience or you know, we have experience with this patient population and this patient population will not want someone coming into their house. They will not want home health care. They will want to go see a doctor based on, you know, everything that Lori just said I agree with because that's the whole trial. They, they want to go see the person who knows the most about their indication and is able to support them and give them that feeling of I'm getting the best treatment possible. No, I think you summarized it pretty well. I think from a supply chain and the future perspective, it continues to remain agile because from a direct-to-patient perspective, supply chain logistics remains the core at the heart of the services. Ultimately, Laurie, as you rightly mentioned, introducing any kind of new innovation from a supply chain perspective has to benefit the patient and make their life easier. I always like to give this example from the music industry. When we were young, not that I'm old at this point of time, but when, <laughs> when we were young, we used to, whenever there's a new music album that used to come, we used to run to the music store, pick up a turntable and put it on our turntable to play the music. But today I see my daughters asking Google to play the music. And this is revolutionizing the way the customer experiences. This is how music industry has brought in a customer-centric approach. And that's exactly is the situation with decentralized trials. The direct-to-patient shipment is only as good as ultimately it brings in the benefit and helps solve the patient's problem, helps solve the key needs of the patient's Your example or your iteration or analogy to the music industry is great because telemedicine is basically in its infancy. 
I mean, I think the pandemic has just sort of broken the glass and now we're just going to deal with it. And who's going to take that for who's going to be the apple of telemedicine? Who's going to break that model? That's the really exciting part of it. Yeah. So I think this is very interesting. So thank you so much to both of you for sharing such wonderful insights. I think the complexity of decentralized drug shipping and management introduces potentially greater complexity and risk in the clinical trials, both to the subjects themselves and to the integrity of the trial. But the most important part is having our own in-house network of clinical supply depots across the globe with a hub and spoke model and the supply chain experts like you all help us mitigate that complexity and risk to a very large extent and helps us connect the GCP world with the GMP world more effectively. So thank you so much, Laurie. And thanks, Daniel, for being here, for sharing your experience and thoughts. And I'm really looking forward to the next podcast in the series. Thank you very much. Had a great time. Thanks, Sanjay. It was a pleasure being here. And to our listeners, if you're interested in learning more, visit parexcel.com. You can also follow Parexcel on social media to learn more insights from our subject matter experts. And finally, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Google, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Until next time, thank you once again for listening. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in next time as our Decentrally Speaking series continues to engage with other subject matter experts and thought leaders on expanding clinical access for patients through the use of decentralized trials.